Hello, I'm Jenny Thomas. And I'm Nick Heath, and welcome to Jenny Thomas Talks About Child Bereavement for the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust. As a journalist friend and someone who lost a parent in my teenage years, my role in this series is to ask Jenny to share with us some stories, insight and guidance as to what's useful for anyone who is grieving or supporting someone who is bereaved. As a leading figure and pioneer in child bereavement, Jenny is the patron of the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust. On these podcasts, Jenny will share what children and parents have said was so important to them at this most difficult time in their lives. I hope you'll find what I've got to say and share with you beneficial. If you find any areas of what we discuss particularly difficult, I do encourage you to seek out a family member, a friend or counselling professional who is able to listen and be supportive. Jenny is regretfully unable to respond to any individual requests for support or counselling. But for more information on the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust, visit almt.org. And if you'd like further resources, you can head to Jenny's website on jennythomas.com or view the links in the podcast description. Hello and a very warm welcome to those of you joining us for episode two as Jenny Thomas talks about child bereavement for the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust. Jenny, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Nick. Good, good. Um, Now, listeners to episode one will have heard about what to expect over the course of the series, as well as hearing about your support to the amazing Andrew and Ruth Strauss. Um, Now, we've already recorded today's episode, so, uh, so what have we covered in this one? We've covered the death of a baby before birth, at birth, and in the weeks after birth. So this episode began with Jenny mentioning John Bowlby, as you'll hear, a British psychologist known as the father of attachment theory. Now that's a theory related to the importance of the first primary attachment that we make as babies. So over to Jenny then, who talks here, first of all, about how her work began. John Bowlby had a huge influence on me. And when I was first nursing and working on the baby unit in in, um, Amersham Hospital in the early days, which were in the mid-60s, it was unusual for parents to have very much to do with their babies. And over on the children's side, on the paediatric ward, it was even more unusual for children to be allowed to have very many visitors. Because it wasn't thought of to be helpful. Mm. But John Bowlby changed all of that and he wrote some very helpful things that professionals started to look at. And I worked for a consultant who wanted us to implement some of Bowlby's thinking. In terms of then your first experience of the loss of a baby, just tell me a little more about that. The very first time I um, helped a mother when a baby had died, um, I'd been asked to go to the ward to help her breastfeed and I'd been told she'd had twins um, and that one had died. And when I tried to get the little boy that she was trying to breastfeed on the breast, she didn't really help me at all. She lay back in the bed and I encouraged her and said, "Um, I need a bit you to sit up a bit. And she just started to cry and she said, I just don't even feel like feeding him. I just want to know about my baby that's died. And in those days, it wasn't my job to be able to tell her. It was thought to be more helpful if mothers didn't know what they'd had or to get over it quickly and have another baby. But I actually said to her I'd find out and 
I wasn't terribly popular, but I did discover that she'd had a little girl. And I went across to the mortuary, um, which I'd never been to before. And most of us never went anywhere near the mortuary. But there was a really nice mortician who was it, let was me Was it in. quite daunting to be going there? Um, I don't know that it was, funnily enough. I was more inquisitive. You know, I wanted to see what this little baby was for her. And, and the mortician was very nice. And he let me see the baby. And I told, I told me it was a little girl. And I then came back and was able to tell her what she'd had. And she was so pleased. And that a caring man was looking after a baby in the mortuary. Mm. I think we need to always be aware that you love your baby every bit as much when it dies as you did but you would if it was alive. Mm. So you need to know where it's gone and who's looking after it. Um, and that led me to realize that her attachment to this little dead baby was every bit as big as it was to the baby that lived. And understanding that we hadn't really taken that on board enough in the grief that happened within a maternity or a special care baby unit. Mm. And it wasn't just me. There were lots of very, very caring staff and particularly a manager that I worked for called Jean MacDonald that had a wonderful way of involving parents with their babies. What we learnt was that some of these different stories that I'm going to explain to you um, were not just not understood, that we didn't really know as professionals, as people caring for families in these situations, that it mattered. But I remember one woman telling me that she knew she was pregnant. She knew she'd lost a baby early in pregnancy, mm. but she had nothing to show for it. So could I please arrange for the consultant that had seen her to confirm the pregnancy to just write her a note oh, wow. saying that she had a baby, she was expecting a baby. And that's a... That just shows you how important that is to a woman, really. Val validation that the moment had occurred and, and, and that yes. she has something to hang, hang a belief on or a, or a memory on. Well, knowing that, yes, she was going to be a mum. And I think that's the other thing, just to remember that from the moment you're told you're having a baby, most people think of it as a baby. They don't think that they're having a fetus. They don't think that this baby or they often are quite worried until they get well after 12 weeks. But they do feel that it's a baby, mm. whether it's a very welcome idea or not. Mm. And I know you've mentioned to me that, that sort of disparity of terms when, when people will believe they're having a baby, but a doctor at a certain point will then refer to a fetus. And, mm. and, and actually the, the terminology in that area is important. Very, very important. I'm sure it doesn't, it's very well you know, managed nowadays. Mm. Often I would also go to the maternity unit. Um, where I would help out. Where In those days, there were lots of areas that you were allowed to go and work in. And I loved being on the maternity unit as well as in the special care baby unit. So if we weren't busy in the special care unit, I'd go and help the midwives. Mm. And I realized how enormous the loss of a stillborn baby is. That, you know, very often women could have a stillborn and they wouldn't even know that the baby was going to be stillborn. So that's referred to as a fresh stillborn. It's just happened in birth. Mm. But sometimes people know before the baby's even born that there's no fetal heart, that they are going to have a baby. They're going to have to deliver naturally, vaginally a baby um, that 
isn't alive. And that is a huge thing for anyone to have to do and to go through. And the way that woman and her partner are managed by the midwifery staff has a very big impact on how they do any of the things that they might later be pleased they did. Mm, So what do you mean by that? Well, I once witnessed um, a midwife delivering a little baby that was dead and saying to the mum, would you like a cuddle with your little one? And the mother just put her arms out and held the baby. She later said to me, she was so grateful to that midwife for saying it like she did, because she said, if she'd asked me if I want to hold my baby, I probably would have said no, because I've never seen anyone dead. Mm. And hold sounds so cold, like you're going to hold something dead. Mm. Felt very different to, would you like a cuddle? Mm. You mentioned a few scenarios of, of the loss of a baby, so perhaps we can we can look at some of those, starting with pregnancy loss, and because pregnancy can carry, obviously, a lot of different emotions for a lot of different people. Yes, of course, it does. Um, for some people, they're absolutely overjoyed. For others, there's a real trepidation. It wasn't planned. It wasn't particularly wanted. Um, it might be that then on their own. They don't have a partner. It might be one of them doesn't want it. I mean, there are so many. It's quite a complicated area of care for Mm. anyone working in this profession. You know, you can never quite tell. And it's not always helpful that if you lose a baby that's very, uh, very early in pregnancy, that you make too much emotional fuss of it, because it might not be how the the mother was feeling. Mm. And that can be very difficult for her and for yourself. Mm. Um, so there can be lots of different feelings about being pregnant. Um, also, if you've waited a long time or you've tried for some time to have a baby, it can be extremely difficult to face the fact that you have lost this baby and you're going to have to start all over again. And it does have an effect on relationships. It's bound to. Mm. You can't help it. When you're actually making love to make a baby is very different to just being normally a couple mm. in a normal married or not married a partnership yeah the modern technology too today makes a very big difference to how the bond is in pregnancy because we can now see our little one on a you know scan um, and a monitor oh absolutely and you know you know you you, you really know the baby long before we, we would have done years ago. You know, the baby can be a very real person and quite often people name their baby quite early and they choose to know the sex. Mm. And even if they didn't, it's still very real in the pregnancy if you've seen a, a, a scan. Yeah. And people can be every bit as attached to a very tiny baby as to a baby that's a term. It just depends on how the people, how the mother feels or the couple feel, how planned the baby was, what it carries in, in, its, um, in its expectation. Mm-hmm. I always ask parents to tell me about their birth if I see them after they've had a baby that's died because I've learned over time that people don't really talk about your birth if your baby dies. They think that if they leave that bit... It'll be easier for you. But for most of us, and me included, I feel like I've needed to talk about my births frequently. Mm. Um, Even now as a granny, I was sharing my births with my daughter. I think that that's something that 
um, is a natural a natural thing to do. And if your baby dies, you need to do it too. Mm. So it's something I really enjoy. I enjoy hearing about their birth and what their dreams had been. Mm. And, and, and even if a baby's died, it's still a process that a mother's gone through. Oh, definitely. And it's probably one of the biggest things we ever do. It's a huge, huge thing to do, giving birth. And it can leave you with feeling very sort of de-skilled and what was my body for when a baby dies and I think to realize that your body did the birth well or possibly did the birth well and even if you needed lots of help you still did it yeah what about the difficulties surrounding those who make a decision to end a pregnancy due to the baby's condition in my experience those particular couples or people need a huge amount of time and thought and support to make that decision it's much much harder than is thought people think there's something wrong with the baby something very wrong the most helpful thing is you know you can terminate that pregnancy and then go on and have a a normal baby but the people I see frequently feel unbelievably sad and guilty they feel like they've done something they never dreamt they would do in all their life And they can feel very guilty about it, even if they know that what they did was probably the right thing for them. Mm. I'm not saying there's no judgment on it at all, but I do think people don't realize how hard it is. Um, And they need more time to tell a person that they've got a baby that's got something very seriously wrong with it and that they can come in and have a termination takes a lot of time and planning for that couple and that family and I remember one particular family that I saw who already had two children and they were struggling financially and they unexpectedly got pregnant again and this little baby actually had down syndrome Mm. and they were a very um, Christian couple um, and they chose even with their all their Christian faith they chose to not continue with that pregnancy which was right for them Mm But they couldn't tell the community they were in because they felt they'd be judged that they had terminated a baby. Mm. And so it made an enormous pressure on them as a couple because, you know, they would be prayed for in their church for the loss of their baby. But actually they felt like they it was their fault they'd mm. done it. And so those sorts of things, you know, added to the pressure of making a decision like that. And there can be lots of other decisions where people make a decision um, around um, or not around termination that can be very positive. I, I was involved with a young girl who knew she was having twins and she was told at about 20 weeks that one of the babies had a condition that meant he couldn't or it couldn't live when it was born and she could terminate that pregnancy, that baby, and might risk the the other baby in the pregnancy. But she chose not to do that. She said, no, I want to give both my babies um, as much time in pregnancy as I can. And she was very determined that they gave her the measurements of the one baby, well, both of them, even the one that she knew wouldn't live. Mm. And I was there when she delivered these twins And one was a little girl and one was a little boy. And the little boy was the one with the problem. But she wanted them to be put in a cot together so that the little girl was looking at him um, 
and which we did. And she told me afterwards that it was such a wonderful thing to have done because she could show everybody her twins when she went home. So there was a picture taken of the two of them. Together. And she really said that helped her grief so much, you know, that that had happened. I mean, I'm sure it probably happens in other situations, but it certainly had not been very thought about before. Mm. So it's those sorts of things. I wrote lots of policies and protocols for the unit and for the the different areas that I worked in so that that became known in the hospital. Mm. And um, I'll get on to later how I then founded the Child Bereavement Charity and took those policies and protocols to different hospitals all over the UK. Mm. Well, you mentioned how your early work encountered stillbirth and how hard that can be. What challenges are more specific in that area? Things like um, making sure that people, when they're told that their pregnancy is uh, has ended with the baby having no heartbeat, that those parents are not then just taken to delivery suite and induced to deliver a baby, that they're given some choices. I think it's all about choice Mm. and time, really. And one particular mum I know told me that she wished she'd been told that she would need clothes for her little dead stillborn baby because when she was told the news, her husband took her home. She was so upset. She was coming in the next day and she opened the case that had all her her clothes in and her little baby clothes and she threw the baby clothes in her distress out and she then felt so terrible when she delivered this little one that actually she was asked have you got anything you'd like to put it in and she looked at her husband and said they're on the floor in the bedroom fortunately he was a very sensitive dad and he went and got them and they dressed their baby in their clothes Mm. but it's things like that they all sound quite easy but they make such a difference Mm. to the parents and it's regrets that you haven't done that that can make make life much harder so memories are very very important memories of the birth memories of the pregnancy memories of the time after the birth. Parents talk to me as if it's like a video in their head. They Mm. remember everything, mostly very positively about the staff and how they were cared for. But I remember one particular um, dad that asked me for some support because he, um, his wife didn't want to look at the pictures and um, that we'd taken. She wasn't ready. And he said, I wonder if you could come and see us and maybe you could help her see the photos of our little baby. And he got the photos out when I was there and he passed her one of the pictures of their little baby lying on his side naked. And um, she thought it was really lovely. And she said, oh, isn't he gorgeous? And his daddy said, yes, and can you see he's very well blessed. (laughs) And it's small things. I mean, that sounds perhaps not appropriate, but it's actually really important to see your whole baby with nothing on if you can. And you need staff to gently be able to help you do that. And and also something that wasn't done in those days, but were, were a few years later, give parents an opportunity to take their dead baby home if they want to. Mm. It's a totally normal thing to want to do. You need to have a you know special permission and that all but that can all be done by the hospital that's not a problem so just remember that people need time to take on board that their babies died to to then do things they really wish they'd done with the baby 
and then to not have to hurry the death afterwards or even the funeral. You know, you don't have to hurry it. Make sure you do it in a way that you really want it to be. Um, I think that's crucial. You mentioned the staff and the the positive memories that that people have of them and the role they play in any loss. Um, How does staff, in your experience, know what to do? Um, You also mentioned having sort of developed those those policies and protocols, founding the child bereavement charity, that sort of thing. Yes, staff are crucial, Nick, in how families make choices, know what's available. If you don't get somebody telling you about grief and loss and what might be possible, you you wouldn't know. So, So what I did was I devised training that was specifically helpful for staff to look at themselves, to look at how loss and bereavement had impacted on their own lives before they even decided to be nurses, doctors, policemen, pathologists, because most of us experience loss in our life, lots of different losses. And we looked at, oh, I looked at how those professionals, if they were given training in their own experience of loss, would be more helpful to people when they came in touch with a difficult situation. And and I, I imagine that sort of process for them was very similar to the process you first had when you trained as a counsellor in recalling your own loss. You got it. That's absolutely right. And actually it was my experience and it working so well and helping me to then not be worried about being upfront and honest with people that led me to take that training that I devised and form the work that became the basis of the child bereavement charity. Yeah, so from from where you were in the NHS to to founding the charity, just just tell us a little bit more about how that step was made. Well, I I always was in the NHS my entire career, and even when I founded the child bereavement charity on the basis of the training I devised, I still remained working for the NHS. Without the NHS, I would never, ever have been able to found the Child Bereavement Charity. Um, It's now Child Bereavement UK. And I think that what happened through that time was that people began to recognise that it was important to have training to do this work well Mm. and I'm very pleased that that continues in lots of different ways and I stayed working with families throughout this time because it gave me the information I needed to keep updating the training Mm. because there was a time in in the in in about 2002 where we had a big crisis in the NHS about how people felt about their babies organs being used and I was invited to go on to a commission the retained organs commission by the chief medical officer to be there for families and to tell us what they felt about this and I was able to devise a training program around that and I actually um, worked on a program for doctors called the anatomy of respect which was we need to respect babies and their and children and people who've died and their bodies and their organs you know all of that was part of the training that was so crucial and of course it's it was also important in schools um across the board really any professional working um where loss and death 
can be part of that work needs to get training in how to do it well. And going back then to those people that obviously get directly affected by the loss of a baby. We naturally think of the mother uh, or the father, um, but it can be something that really obviously affects siblings as well. Yes, particularly if the baby's been, in my experience, been on a special care baby unit. The siblings will have come in and seen it. And um, although children, little children, don't grieve in the same way for a dead baby that the the parents do, because they, you know, they haven't got, they haven't had any experience of it. They can be very worried about what happens and what's happened to the baby if you don't tell them and include them. And I can remember being asked by a couple to help their um, little children see the little sister that was on our unit that had been on a ventilator for a few days, so they'd seen her quite a lot, but that they would be able to be helped to see her when she died and I agreed to help with that and one of the things that's important with children is that you prepare them for what they're going to see Mm. in all situations around loss I mean we do it in normal things but we forget in loss Mm. and so with this little these two little children I met them outside of the unit I bent down so I was the same sort of eye level I said who I was that and then I explained I was going to take them to see their little dead sister And um, the little boy actually said, what does dead look like? And I said, well, she's a bit blue in her lips, and um, but she looks still looks like your little baby sister. Mm. She'd probably be cold if you touch her because she's died. Her body doesn't work anymore. It's really important to tell children what death is. Death is your body doesn't work anymore. It makes complete sense to her. This little boy went on to university when I last spoke to him and he remembers being told that and not being scared mm. and thought it was a very helpful thing to to know. Uh, uh, we took them in to see this little sister and we lifted her, or I lifted her out of the little cot she was in um, and held her and said, did they want to do anything? He asked if he could hold her. So I put this little very dead baby girl in his lap and he just kissed her. Oh. kissed her on the forehead so it wasn't scary mm. he did say she was cold yeah but that was right you yeah. know you have to be realistic you can't make death what it isn't mm. it's not helpful to make a baby look alive if it isn't mm. you know we have to slowly be helped to face the reality as i've talked about before sure when you're expecting or having a baby you're you're dreaming of your future. It's the whole future ahead of you. When a baby dies, you lose your future. Mm. Actually, if you lose someone you've known for a long time, like you have, like your mum, mm. you know, you've got all the 14 years you had with her yeah. to make um, your memories. Yeah. But actually, if you have a little baby that never even swallows one drop of milk, it that's all you have. Mm. Yeah. And... Uh, and I guess part of that element of, of people needing the time they take may be that, that sometimes you approach them offering your services and, and they're not quite ready to take them on board, but, but it might be that they come to you further down the line. Yes, in fact, I, again, it's another um, memory I have of a parents that I met on the unit who were, had their little dead baby in the bed with them, and I'd been asked to go in and tell them my role was as a bereavement counsellor, and if they wanted help later... I could come and see them or they could come and see me. And um, the dad was holding the baby and he said, no, no, we'll be fine, love. We we don't 
believe in counseling. I said, oh, that's, that's fine. You've met me now. And off I went. And a month or so later, I got a call from him. And he said that, uh, would I come and see them? That he and his partner were having a few problems. And um, as often happens after a little while, you, you know, you, you, you could do with sometimes a bit of help. Mm. And, um, he said that after I'd met him on the unit or them that day, a member of staff had come in and said that it was very warm in the room and she felt she better take the baby now. And he said to me, I don't think she realized that just from, from her facial expression, that she, what she was telling us was that she was worried he was going to go off. <laughs> and I know that sounds really extraordinary thing to yeah. talk about, but actually People know, they know what happens to us when we die. And it would be much more helpful just to talk about that, to say how long you can have the baby before it needs to go to a cool room. Mm. You know, it needs to, I think today, certainly in the hospital that I'm still in touch with, um, we we do have a special room with a special area that is cool, or there is a cool box Mm. that a baby's body that's died can be put in. But part of that story is just don't underestimate how much people pick up on professionals reactions to things mm. they watch us and they look at us and um yeah and can take a lead yes. yeah or, or or certainly pick up on things that we might not think they might mm. um tell me about your experience of those who may hear news that their baby might not live very long or or where perhaps they they end up heartbroken having learned about an unexpected condition oh yes Some years ago, um, a little baby was born on our unit that um, was very, very sweet to look at, looked mostly perfect, just had rather short little limbs and legs. And the parents had to take on board that there was something quite wrong with him. It was very helpful that when they were told that information, that the baby was with them, that they immediately just cuddled him and didn't reject him. Mm. And I think that's something we need to be mindful of when people hear very bad news around a baby. It can be very important to give them a chance to bond. It's more of this bonding and awareness that I learned many, many years ago. Now, I know that doing this podcast is is a great opportunity to hear about many of your experiences, but previously you've had the opportunity to to help write a couple of books on on these themes. And and in preparing for for chatting about this, you've also been able to to review them and find how appropriate some of some of the previous writings you've done are. So, uh, do you want to just share a little bit of, of of one of the passages with us? Yes, I wrote about emotions and and that at times you can feel as if you're going through very stormy weather. And you're all alone. And some people worry that they ought to be more sad or that they worry if they're happy again. And somehow they're being disloyal to their baby if they're happy again. But love is not measured in sadness. Um, When your baby dies, your dreams and plans, your work as a parent to care and protect are left unfulfilled. One father said, if I believed in having graves, I would Write on the gravestone, tread softly, for you tread on my dreams. I think that's really lovely. Mm. And loneliness is a very big part of grief, a very big problem um, for people. Even if they have a very close partner, you can still feel very lonely in grief. And other people often don't know. They didn't know your baby. That's 
also something uh, you're if you're lucky enough as a granny and grandpa to have seen a little baby that's died that's a great or an auntie and uncle that's a great help but often we don't think of that until a bit later we wished we'd done that mm. you know um different emotions will probably come and go and may vary and in gentle and be gentle or intense you can be surprised at how you swing from one feeling to another and some days you'll feel quite well or okay and other days you can be really really down and at first intense sadness mixes strangely with the joy almost of every parent feels at least partly after a birth you can feel very proud that you actually gave birth to a baby even though it's dead and you can be very proud of it even though it never looked lived after the first numb disbelief comes a great sense of loss and sadness and that can last quite a long time and people frequently get in touch with me many months after the loss of a baby or or a, or a child um and i say did you not know that i i was available through the hospital and you could have seen me and they say yes we did we were told but we thought we'd manage it but it's now much harder than it was even at the beginning because mm. i think at the beginning we are protected a bit with um the sort of just not the reality of what it's going to be and people stop being so concerned and caring towards us and it can feel like the baby's been forgotten and mm. that's just the most awful feeling you know for most of us our children are going to be with us all our lives and if you lose a baby you want people to always remember you had it especially in the family and grannies and grandpas remembering that there was a little baby born as one of their grandchild children is always um important mm. and can be very hurtful when that that um, child is not remembered some of the, the family i'm seeing at the moment are absolutely delighted that they've had a really lovely card from uh, um, an auntie about remembering that this is the time your little one would have been born and i know how sad you must be that mm. you haven't got her to look after mm. Yeah, I was actually chatting to a friend of mine about doing this podcast with you. And I've noticed that because these subjects can feel relatively taboo, or we're not talking about them over a pint in the pub, that when I mentioned it to her, she then told me about a miscarriage that she had had. Uh, and that it was only after six weeks, but that she was then very well aware that seven and a half months later, it was going to be the baby's due date. And so all the while that she'd lost the baby and she'd only carried it for, for, a, for a very brief amount of time, that she was still aware of, of the mother mm -hmm. she was expecting to be and that actually as that due date came around, it was, it was a big date in her mind and, and I'm sure has been all the years since as to, as to when that might have been you know, the birthday of her child. So Yes, you never lose your due date. You're mm. quite right. Even though often we don't have the baby on a due date, it becomes really an important day in your life. Mm. Um, and you can feel very, you can feel that life is very unfair when your baby dies. Why did this have to happen to me? What's wrong with me? What could I have done differently? Um, as a woman, you feel often that the one thing you were meant to be was have a baby and you failed in that. And it can really knock your self-esteem. Um, and you can feel angry and very hurt at the same time. There's so many feelings and grief um, that people just don't understand. One of the biggest things I see, and I 
um, frequently helping people to understand that you can become very, very anxious when you're grieving. There's a lot of anxiety in grief because when something unexpected happens, it can feel like the whole world isn't safe anymore. And I know some of the people I see talk about, well, I've lost a baby, but I'm terrified of losing my partner. I never used to worry about when he didn't come home on time. Mm. But now I th- always think something awful's happened to him. And that's quite a normal reaction. It does get, it does wear, it gets better and in, in you need to talk about it and it gets less worrying. But it's a big part of of, of life is anxiety, uh, life after the loss, of any loss, but certainly even of a little baby. Regarding how you've worked over your career, Jenny, I know that you've found much greater benefit in seeing bereaved couples together. Why do you think that's important? When I first started to do the bereavement work that the hospital, the NHS hospital allowed me to do, I was allowed to see mums only. It was thought that the mother was the chief mourner, Um, I didn't go to people's homes. They came to see me. I had a room at the hospital that was my room, my counselling room. And um, it was only after probably about 10 years of being involved in that way that I realised so often the woman, the mum, got very close to me and felt like it was only me that she was sharing this loss with. And even though I would talk about how does your partner feel, I never really got a a a big sense of that. So I persuaded the bosses that I worked for that I would do some training in couples counselling and I then was allowed to see couples. And I've really never looked back. I've been Mm. seeing couples for at least 30 plus years. And I think it's much, much more helpful because it helps the mum and dad both talk about their feelings. And if a dad is wanting to make everything better, which often can be the case, and terribly worried about his partner being so sad and so low, um, I can help them understand what happens to us in grief and that, you know, it's helpful to share. And I'll always give them both enough time to share how they are so they both get to hear what the other one is feeling. And number of times, um, one of them will say, I didn't know you you thought that and mm. I didn't know you didn't tell me that and um, you know those sort of questions um, get answered that they hadn't had a chance to talk to it's a safer place to I remember I remember you telling me a story uh, about a couple who I think the the mother had got in touch with you having lost a young girl and and that they weren't really communicating with each other very much about it and, and weren't sure if the relationship was going to continue and actually it was it was when you turned up and and asked him how he felt that he was able to share it with you in a way that he hadn't in front of his partner and it and it proved to be beneficial that way yes yes I think that's right and and men and women do grieve differently I'm not saying there's that you know there's a set pattern at all but on the whole men have a preference to to try and make it better to move forward to take care of things to you know um try and take their partner's mind off it um and actually women very often but not always but women very often feel that they're more helped if they can be allowed to feel the sadness and the grief and have a cry and talk about it um the dad needs to usually just be told there's nothing you need to do just Mm. listen Mm. give her a hug listen ask her tell say tell me about it Mm. 
Tell me about why you're upset today. Oh, okay, so you saw a little child and it reminded you of our little child. Those sorts of things are incredibly helpful. But how would you know that? If you've never had grief, you've never had the loss of a child in your life, how would a man know that what he needs to do to be helpful very often is to want to listen mm. and not to feel like they have to make you better. Mm. And for a woman, it's fine to also be very, very sad um, or to be very restorative. It sort of brings me to a model that I find really helpful. I'll just talk about it briefly, if I may, but it's called the dual process model of coping with bereavement. And it's about how um, it's been um, written and done by some very learned professionals, Professor Margaret Strobe is one of them, but she talks about there being two circles in thinking about how we behave in grief. And in one circle, she calls that loss behavior, and the other circle, it's restorative behavior. And we all go between those two behaviors. And in the loss behavior is when we feel the feelings, we want to go to the grave, we want to... Um, smell the clothes that our child wore. We want to feel the feelings. We might also want to talk about feeling guilty. We, we, we want to be in touch with that bit of ourselves that is really grieving and our behavior shows it. Mm. Um, very often we'll cry or we may be angry. It can be all of that. And in the other circle, the other behavior is about trying to attend to life's changes, trying to get on with life. Try, just trying to get up and shop, you know, just trying to do anything that's restorative when all you want to do is lie in bed, you mm. know. And that can be all right too if you need a day doing that. But on the whole, um, we start to move into, well, what are we going to do today and how are we going to do it? And um, frequently we want a break from grief. So actually if you're restorative, you get a break from it. And for men, it's very, very helpful if they can go back to work and get a break from it. But they also need to be recognized as needing time off to have the lost feelings just like the women do. Um, women often do. So, um, what, But what was helpful in learning about these models was this particular Professor Strobe I was at in a, at a conference and she explained to me that it's the oscillating, the going backwards and forwards between those feelings feelings that, you know, uh, helps us to stay, mm. you know, managing grief. And so I, I, I often invite people to think about, well, when you've had a loss in your life, this is when I'm talking to professionals um, who want to learn about grief. Think about when, when, you, when you had that loss, when were you in the loss behavior? Mm. What did you do? You know, and people can immediately identify and remember their own. And then what did you do when you felt restorative? Oh, we went on holiday or we, you know, um, we dug the garden and planted lots of blue flowers that were a memory of our child. So every, every all the year something comes up in the garden that's blue. Mm. That was very restorative. Um, so yes, that's, that's, and men frequently are more loss-orientated and women are more um, 
no, sorry, the other way around. Men are more restorative orientated and women are more loss orientated. Mm. But it doesn't mean that it has to be like that. You no, can be one of, you know, you can be completely different. There's no right way. It's, yeah. just, it's just a helpful way of looking at it. You've also talked about, um, or you mentioned to me previously, about um, seeing it as a bit of a seesaw where maybe you have got a woman who's lost a baby and then you've got their partner and actually the relative stresses or not of, of sort of how far into their grief or how much they're moving on and, and the importance to try and level that up a bit. Are you able to sort of illustrate that again to us? I'll try and explain what I see. When I see couples very often, um, they are managing a seesaw in their relationship. Sometimes one is down and the other's up and one is up and the other one's down. But in the loss of a child or a baby, it can go very out of sync, the seesaw, because the natural reaction for a woman that's carried a baby, given birth, and the child has died, can be immense distress. Immense. I'm not saying the father doesn't feel terribly upset as well, but there's something very physical about the grief that the mother will feel. And frequently she will be so distressed that it will upset her partner who feels like he wants to take care of her and make it better. Mm. So he doesn't talk about it too much because he's worried about her. So he's on the other end of the seesaw. She's down the heavy end of it. He's on the other end. And the more he gets back on to life and is restorative, the more heartbroken she can become and more alone. And what happens in that sort of situation is he then becomes really worried that his wife's going to have a breakdown or something dreadful is going to happen. So he gets even more upbeat and does things that try and lift everything. And actually the only thing that really helps in situations like that is when the dad puts some weight on his end of the seesaw by sharing what he's feeling which will be different, but he will have feelings about the loss of a baby or a child. And then it'll help the mum to lift up. Because if you imagine, if you were sitting on a seesaw now, Nick, how hard it would be to get up if the other end was terribly light and Mm. you were down on the ground. Mm. So it's that that I feel in my work, I often just try and help them seesaw a bit more helpfully and explaining to them, why we do what we do and why it might not be helpful. Mm. No, it's a really good illustration. And where parents are concerned in in that couple, how are they in terms of approaching funerals in your experience? Usually they do that really very helpfully together because dads will do all the logistical stuff. They'll get the death and birth certificate from the hospital. They'll be good at that bit and Mum will very often think about what she wants said and what sort of little coffin, or they do it together. It's really helpful to be able to bury or cremate your baby in the way that your child, that's the way you feel is right for you. Mm. So one thing you can do, and I'd really say to people, if they ever get a chance to give it some time, not to hurry it, to really think what they want. Nearly all the families I see are so pleased with what they did that they found either someone who run do the service well for them that they really liked the way they did it or they had a a completely different approach but it feels important a funeral is is an important um, way of managing the end 
of your experience of the loss. And it's also important for children, as I've said previously, children to be um, given an opportunity, if it feels right, to attend a funeral. I think not when, particularly when it's a little baby, because they might not have even known it. So it wouldn't be that helpful for them to come along to that, but at least know that there's been a funeral. Mm. And I do remember one dad saying to me when his little girl died that he said to his two boys, now that she's died, we've got to decide as a family what we're going to do. And we can either have a, a burial or we can have a cremation. And he said to these children, if we have a burial for her, it means that a big hole will be dug in the ground to a certain depth that has to be by law and then a little she'll be put in a little coffin and it'll be nailed down and the coffin will go in the ground and then we'll put all the earth on top of the coffin and she'll be mixed with the earth and I thought that was a really nice way of putting it and then I thought how is he going to manage the bit about the cremation and he said a very helpful thing totally truthful he said she this little sister would go in the same coffin. It would be the same thing, a coffin, would be nailed down. And um, it would go to the cremator, which was on the hill outside where they live, which they drive past, and they know it's a cemetery with a cremator there. Um, and he said the cremator will be lit and the coffin would be put in and, and the coffin with the, the little sister in it would be burnt. And there'd be ashes from that. And they would be able to collect the ashes and put the ashes wherever they wanted to. Mm. And he said, when you're mixed, uh, when, you, when you're when um, you cremated, you're mixed with the air because from the fire, um, smoke comes. Mm. And they were a Christian family. And the eldest little boy said, um, well, I know, I, I know um, what we need to do for her. Um, she needs to be cremated because she'll get to Jesus quicker oh. through the air yeah so you know it wasn't a horrid uh, horrendous thing for him yeah and it was nice for them to feel part of that decision making process yes and very difficult a very difficult thing to talk to children about and and often people think that children don't wonder but children are quite helped by knowing that your body doesn't work anymore so mm. when you get put in a coffin you're definitely not alive because mm. they can be a bit worried that maybe it wasn't, you know, you weren't quite dead. Mm. And then you're doing this at a funeral. So yeah. it's important to be really honest, truthful, use real words. Um, and then they, they usually get it very easily. Yeah. Well, Jenny, as we round off this episode, I guess it's another chance for a final thought from you on, on what else you found can be helpful for people who've lost a baby um, or what's important. Yes, I think one of the things that... Um, a couple told me that I had never thought of, and I thought it was really useful, that they felt they did lots of bickering and rows after they had their baby had died. And one of the days when they were dishing up supper, they were having a row about what felt like nothing, and he just said to her, he put the dishes down, and he said to her, took her by the shoulders, and just said, this is all about our holly. We're only rowing because we haven't got her. So now, whenever we row, whichever one of us is able to do it, we take the other one and hold them and say, let's just have a hug and remember Holly. Because mm. losing a child can make you very easily irritated with each other. Mm. And it's not always a helpful thing to try and do anything about that other than just be kind and thoughtful. 
Well, we hope that what you've heard from Jenny's experience and some of the stories she's been able to share can bring some comfort if you've suffered the loss of a baby or if you're giving guidance to someone who has. Our thanks once again to the Angus Lawson Memorial Trust and we'll be back next time. Jenny, thanks very much once again and uh, we look forward to joining you next time. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.